Welcome to the Democracy Group, a network of podcasts about democracy, civic engagement, and civil discourse. In this feed, you will find a sampling of episodes from our podcast and the Democracy Group, as well as recordings from our events. If you enjoyed this podcast, then please visit democracygroup.org to find more like this. Now let's get to our featured episode. Welcome to Democracy Works. I'm Jenna Spinelli. This week, we're bringing you a conversation that I originally recorded for the New Books Network with Nikki Usher, a media scholar at the University of Illinois. Her latest book calls into question some of the conventional wisdom about the relationship between local news and democracy. You might remember that we talked about this topic back in the fall with Jennifer Lawless from the University of Virginia. I put a link to that episode in the show notes if you want to go back and listen. Nikki's work questions how much local news really impacts civic participation and whether the connections between news deserts and democracy deserts are as clear-cut as Lawless and other political scientists want them to be. As you might be able to tell, this is a subject that I care deeply about. I'm a former newspaper reporter and currently teach journalism here at Penn State. If you want to hear more conversations like this about news and the news industry, subscribe to New Books in Journalism on the New Books Network. Hope everyone is having a good summer so far. We are about halfway through our summer break, and we'll have the whole Democracy Works team back for new episodes starting in late August. But for now, here's my conversation with Nikki Usher. I'm delighted to be talking today with Nikki Usher, Associate Professor at University of Illinois College of Media and author of News for the Rich, White, and Blue, How Place and Power Distort American Journalism, released in July 2021 by Columbia University Press. Nikki, welcome to the New Books Network. Thanks for joining us. Thanks so much for having me. So you have um, been doing field work in, in newsrooms for the past 15 years or so, as, as I understand it. And you um, describe this book as the sum total of everything you've researched thus far. Um, that's, that's a lot to, to mm-hmm. unpack. Um, so let's, let's maybe start with this. How did you kind of arrive at this notion of place that is so central to your argument? Yeah. So, I mean, I think that I started thinking a lot about place just in a much more basic sense, because in 2013, I saw that these sort of wonderful news organizations that kind of are, you know, the Philadelphia Inquirer, the LA Times, Miami Herald, like these really important news organizations were really struggling. And there was a really symbolic way that they were struggling and that they were moving from their headquarters. And for somebody, I was a cub reporter, um, a failed cub reporter at the Philadelphia Inquirer. And all I had wanted to do was like come back from the suburbs to go work in the big house, right? And never made it, um, <laughs> which tells you something. But it, and part of, and I think that like, that was a real signifier to me that, wow, like the might of these news organizations, I spent so much time thinking about what what could drive news organizations forward and solve their problems, but this was so symbolic, right? And so that was step one. And step two was 2016. 
And I think like so many other academics, like so many other journalists, like so many other people in the United States, it became so much more clear to me that this was an issue far beyond journalism, that really what was playing out in the United States was this massive fissure around geographic inequality, like places that have stuff and don't have stuff, um, and how that sort of fed into political polarization and just that the place is something we take with us. So based on your race and your gender, right, this old school feminist like standpoint theory transcends just like, you know, when you walk into a room, but actually is implicated in geography and also opportunity. And so I think that's kind of a sort of a journey for me. Um, And kind of the last thought on that is during this time of writing the book, I moved from Washington, D.C. to central Illinois. And that, I think, also brought into full relief kind of that national local media attention and and also the political sort of dynamic. So the other thing that sort of gets wrapped up in these these conversations uh, about local news, kind of its its past and its its future, is the the connection to democracy. Mm-hmm. And you kind of lay out some very specific thoughts on that in in your book. Can you um, lay lay that out for us here? What you see is the the connection or the the relationship between local news and democracy. Yeah. So I mean, I think that there's just sort of this well accepted premise that local journalism is an inherent good for democracy. And that it's something that we absolutely need for democratic life to function and flourish. And on a normative basis, like I absolutely 150% buy that. But I think what we're learning just in a grander scale about the United States and its foundational myths is a lot of them are foundational myths, right? Um, freedom and justice for all is very clearly not freedom and justice for all, and it never was. But the myths have been so powerful that they've served as kind of a uniting force, right? That local democracy fields good communities, what's fields, democratic life. And the reality is if you look historically, right, the kind of local journalism that we associate with holding politicians to account is really just a small, tiny (laughs) slice of the temporal history of sort of journalism in the United States and all of that wonderful de Tocqueville stuff. Most of, most of those news organizations were really just reprinting stuff from elsewhere. Mm -hmm. Like the tradition of, you know, really aggressive local journalism, it belongs to kind of this post Watergate era um, and it was really, it really remains specific to some of these big metro and national newspapers and television, I think. Um, so I think that's, that's kind of one thing. And the second thing is like, I, I certainly see, you know, political science has worked very hard to establish these links, um, especially sort of causally, but I kind of, and it's kind of, um, risky to throw shade at that to say the least, but at the same time time, a lot of the best of that research was done in a very different media environment Mm. um, with very different assumptions about what democracy looked like and who democracy included. Mm -hmm. So I kind of threw some shade at at that. Um, And I think that it's really like but I, I, I think that there are also probably the last point here is that there are different models for democracy, right? And 
kind of the one that we imagine um, when we talk about the link between media and democracy is like an informed democracy, a representative democracy. Um, but what we really have, especially the way the news organization, news industry functions now is an elite democracy mm-hmm. where we're getting news about elites for elites where the sanction comes from scandal. And um, I think as we see the evisceration of local news, um, particularly newspapers, which are important not because they're magical, but because they produce a lot of content. I want to be perfectly clear. Um, I think that 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 balance gets worse, but it doesn't mean we shouldn't hold out for the myth, right? Because it's an extraordinarily powerful and important one. Right, right. And yeah, I think the the kind of the the myth goes something like, you know, people read about what's happening, they're more engaged to show up to vote or to get involved in 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 community groups and yeah, just sort of it sort of feeds each other in this this virtuous cycle. But yeah. you know, as as you point out, that is that is not always it or perhaps even even rarely the case. Yeah. Um, and I, I think the other point to point out is that like, and I should have mentioned this, is that news organizations are often supportive of the status quo, right? And we've seen a lot of this around reporting around police violence Mm -hmm. that, you know, police have so often been the unimpeachable force. In quoting the knowns, news organizations reinforce existing power structures. And so if you're reinforcing existing power structures through your very mode of being, that idea of working to create the best democracy you can is kind of anathema to that if you're never really challenging a power structure. Structure, right. So that's kind of another aspect of all of it. Right. So you mentioned the the Philadelphia Inquirer before and the, the, the Chicago Tribune. I think those are examples of what you describe in the book as Goldilocks newspapers. Um, can you tell us more about what they are and, and why mm-hmm. that why this this group of, of newspapers categorically is, is important to, to study or to focus on? Yeah. So first, as a side note, I think if you ever see an academic make a reference to a children's book, it is probably likely they've got a little person around that's uh, because, <laughs> and, and the reality is actually like these, these children's fables have stuck around for a long time because the concepts that they discuss really transcend like time and place. Right. Um, and so Goldilocks, right. It's a familiar story where the, you know, Goldilocks wants the porridge that's just right, not too hot, not too warm. Um, in the case of news organizations, especially big metro newspapers, they're not big enough to have giant national scale and not small enough to have the support of local, very hyper-local specific niche com- or niche communities that would provide a sustainable revenue stream. And the what I call the perverse logics of digital content really, really mess with these Goldilocks newspapers because the only thing that really counts for their revenue, if we kind of think about it in terms of advertising, are those sort of like local slash sort of regional people who are geographically located in the place where the news organization is located because that's where real businesses are, right? And that's where local advertising is, which kind of is ridiculous given that you can be anywhere in the world for the most part, (laughs) except for GDPR, right? And be reading the Miami Herald, right? And so um, sometimes a story that's extraordinarily well-reported at one of these sort of Goldilocks newspapers can actually 
be harmful to their financial outlook. And I give the example of the Miami Herald's um, Cuba, you know, covering the death of Fidel Castro, um, you know, and, and how so much attention from all over the world poured in. And yet, right, they couldn't benefit from all of that readership because those readers weren't local. And in fact, the bigger the scale got, the more undifferentiated these news consumers got because they're not, they're drive-by. They're just showing up once and never coming back. They're not going to subscribe. They have no data that can be reused. And so that's kind of how they're particularly squeezed. And then there's one other aspect of this in which there's just like a limited market, right? If I live in Chicago, I'm not going to subscribe to the Miami Herald or the Philadelphia Inquirer, um, particularly digitally, because it's not like a super satisfying reader experience, right? Unless I've got some real hardcore hometown pride, I'm not living somewhere else and subscribing to my local newspaper. So what they're really depending on is people within like a set number of people, right? There are always a set number of people who would subscribe to a newspaper. And now you've got a set number of people in a different media context that can actually maybe be subscribers. And so they're just really squeezed in the middle, right? And there doesn't like that size is really problematic um, for them. Yeah, so that's kind of the metaphor. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and I mean, the other thing that this this brings up and kind of the the sense of place is that um, we we hear a lot about how you know people in in cities are are transient and they're you know moving they you know kind of move around a lot or don't feel a real sense of allegiance to the place they live. You you talk about this as as placeless guy uh, mm-hmm. in your book. I too have met have met placeless guy and have have argued with placeless guys on the internet about what community means or doesn't mean um, what what does that aspect of it of it mean kind of change you've been we've been talking about changes in like news organizations but how does consumer behavior change fit into this equation absolutely I mean I think that um, there's a certain class of global elites who sort of see themselves beyond living in any one place right they're cosmopolitan citizens of the world and so where they physically are doesn't really matter to their day-to-day experience, right? Because, and um, Manuel Castells, who writes a lot about this tension between what he calls the the space of places and the space of flows, is that like a Ritz in one locale looks pretty similar to a Ritz hotel in the other. And like, actually everything's been set up to allow for the flawless, you know, wherever you are, exchanges of capital, right? Like if you want to trade finances and you're, you're going to find a place to do that really wherever you are if the world is set up for you. And those folks often lose sight of the fact that there are real communities that all have unique challenges. And I think that that kind of gets lost is that every place has a set of social relationships and power dynamics and issues that may resemble each other, right? But aren't the same. The characters aren't the same. Like the histories aren't the same. They may be similar. And that all sets up a different condition for thinking about the survival of local news, but also like the people willing to pay for it. Um, In the biggest city closest to me is Chicago. There's been a historical marginalization of the South Side and the Black community in Chicago by the Chicago Tribune that goes back decades. Is it any wonder that 
this community base doesn't have much interest in supporting the Chicago Tribune because of the historic. And we see it every day. You know, they've, they've recently been apologizing for some of the way they've covered crime, which I think is is a notable step in the right direction. But some places just have long legacies of mistrust. And so there's that side of it all. But also there's like a certain type of person who's willing to subscribe to news right now. Because, you know, if, if you and I look at our local newspapers, they're kind of like these thin sort of like there's not much in there. Like my local newspaper covered the like expansion of the reindeer population at a reindeer farm the other day. And like that's that's cool. I'm glad I know that. But um, for, for sort of one of these people, transient people who can move around, right, because that implies a lot of privilege to be able to to move, right? They're more likely to subscribe to, if they're going to pay for news, they're going to subscribe to a large national outlet. Or if they're going to subscribe to a local outlet, chances are they're like a liberal who believes in like the project of democracy like I do, right? And isn't hasn't been so polarized by the Republican Party to just want to burn it all down and not you know, support local media. So you really have kind of a change in the contours of who's willing to pay for news, I think, to some degree, and also like the supply itself, right? Why pay for an inferior good, right? That doesn't do anything. And why pay for a good that's marginalized you for decades, even if it's like a good civic institution, just generally speaking. So, right. Right. I, I want to come back to solutions for, for both of those things you, you were just talking about, both kind of the, the elites and also, you know, marginalized communities. I think we're seeing different, different, different ideas, different approaches there. But, but before we get there, um, you, you mentioned kind of the, the partisan aspect of this. And I, I feel like there's mm-hmm. also, um, maybe not conflicting information out there about this, but I, I see or, or, you know, have seen studies kind of to indicate that, you know, this, this distrust of, of mainstream media, the kind of fake news complex that, that Donald Trump sort of, you know, definitely brought, brought to the fore doesn't exist as much at the local level as it does at the, the national level. Mm-hmm. And so I'm wondering if, if that bears out from, from your research and maybe how that fits within this Goldilocks paradigm of, of these, these newspapers that are, are right in the middle between local and, and national media. So you've got like, I think when we're talking about community news, there is kind of a different contour, but um, as I show, so I have a, a chapter that actually looks at exactly what you're talking about in the context of place. So it's one thing to talk about it, talk about distrust in news and sort of the decline of local media kind of just as a party, a function of partisan affiliation. But it means something different when you look at it as a function of geography. And so what I find is that and I break up, there's a really great data set that breaks up the United States into different types of communities. So there are like 15 different types of communities. And, you know, it allows you to kind of, without reducing too many similarities, right, you have, you know, um, excerpts and LDS enclaves and like the African-American South. And so it allows you kind of to group some trends together. And what we find is that like, local news is declining pretty much everywhere. And there are some places that have simply just been historical news deserts, right? The African-American South, Native American lands, 
there's never been much of a market and never been much attention by corporate America to really try to sustain vital news in these areas. So then when you start to map on partisanship into this, the weird thing that we find that speaks to what you're saying is actually Republican areas that are heavily Republican relative to the industry are better provisioned for news and information at the local level, which is a really fascinating finding. Um, because what it suggests is perhaps like we don't have indicators of media, media trust at a very local level. Um, Pew did some of that at like a market level, but Mm -hmm. it would be awesome to know, you know, what local, local versus national media trust isn't always asked about. Um, but I think that that finding that Republican areas are over provisioned for local news relative to the industry is a powerful one because it speaks back to what you said, but it also speaks back to this idea that like, you know, having the quote right information doesn't lead to the quote right decisions that people quote will like not vote in their own interests, you know, because the Republican Party doesn't stand for people's interests. And like, there's this really toxic, damaging, um, patronizing rhetoric, um, you know, that if only people had the right information, they'd make better choices. And I don't know, I don't know how I'm still trying to square my frustration with that rhetoric with the very real reality that the contemporary Republican party is dominated by some extraordinary ugliness and racism. But if we look at it just empirically, right, Republican areas at the local level, when we look at news employment are better provisioned relative to big cities, right? These big liberal cities. And yeah. Yeah. I'm sorry. Can you just, just clarify what you mean by better provisioned? Yeah. So what we did is we looked at trends in newspaper employment from 2007 and uh, 20 to 2018. And I want to give a shout out to um, Sanghoon Kim, who is uh, the PhD candidate who worked with me on this. Um, but what we found in looking at kind of trends in, you can get county level data for like how many people are employed in any industry through the Bureau of Labor Statistics. It's really neat. Um, And so we looked at the category of newspaper employment and we kind of compared it, right? There's this big conversation about this oversaturation of journalists in these in large cities relative to the rest of the population, you know, uh, and relative to the news industry as a whole. So like this emptying out of the heartland journalist, right? Um, And that's kind of what comes back to the fact that most places are, are losing news employment, newspaper employment overall. But when you look at this within industry comparison of the relative like population of journalists in big blue cities to journalists in sort of these more Republican areas, you actually do see that relative to the number of journalists as a whole that exists as a labor force, right? In the counties that are Republican, we find that they are more likely to have more journalists relative to the industry, which is kind of contrary to our expectations, I think. Um, And I think the opposite actually happens in terms of the provision of nonprofit dollars, which is another real issue. So we can maybe talk about like Mm. the kind of implicit rural urban dynamics and partisanship that flows into kind of funding news through non-commercial mechanisms. But hopefully that kind of uh, explains it a little bit better. Yeah. And, you know, the, on that, I think one thing that 
you know, big media organizations, the, the, the New York Times, Washington Post, perhaps others realized after the 2016 election was kind of the danger of, of what you describe as Trump safari mm-hmm. journalism. Um, and so they started hiring reporters who would be based in various cities, um, throughout the country, but still, you know, writing for the Times or the or the mm-hmm. Post, and so what? What is kind of the the what? What are the implications of that? I suppose about you know someone being based in a community but not writing for an outlet that is explicitly rooted in that same community. You know, I think that it, to some degree, right? If you're hiring from a local news organization that shed one of their best journalists you're going to get ground up, straight up, fantastic, authentic coverage of a local community. Um, I think that happens less than we might think, unfortunately. Um, And there's always been a real issue of national news organizations kind of plucking headlines from more regional news organizations. And the New York Times, for better or worse, is kind of famous for not linking back ever, right, Um, to some of these local news sources. Um, But I actually found those promises to be a little bit hollow. Like you did, you have seen more postings like job will be outside New York or DC or LA or San Francisco. Like we'll consider that, you know, especially post COVID like remote work is more welcome. But when you then go and read the kind of coverage that's being produced by these folks, like, and I have this example um, in the book that I really think brings it home where Sydney Ember went to live in Iowa in the lead up to um, the, the 2020 kind of primary. And she begins her, her reader and, and, you know, she's a great reporter. I don't want to discredit her from being like a talented person. Right. But she begins her kind of reader reflection as I was in a tree and, you know, talks about going bow hunting with an Iowa state auditor. I've been to Des Moines. I've done a lot of research in Des Moines. I've been to Des Moines pride, you know, Des Moines, a, like, you know, I've considered doing rag ride, which is this awesome race across, mm-hmm. across the state of Iowa. Like not everybody is a bow hunter in the state of Iowa. And I think that like, something gets lost in that translation. And then when you see news organizations like even the Huffington Post promising to reach out to other places in the country, they're just going to kind of regional centers. So like, we're going to go visit Phoenix. That's a big step for us. You know, we're going to go visit like a mid-sized Midwestern city, like St. Louis, like, whoa, you know? Um, so I think that's really kind of a real problem. Um, I think one of the things that really interesting, I think Wesley Lowry, who who blurbed the book, really showed the importance of thinking about community more as place in the place you bring with you. And his coverage of Ferguson, I don't really mention this in the book, but he was one of the few black journalists out there. And his coverage, because he was part of a community and because he could experience things other journalists couldn't, even though he was working for a major national outlet, the kind of coverage he pr- was producing was bar none superior to the rest. And I think that it's important not to just think about it as like just one narrowly sort of geographic place, but also sort of place as power and identity and belonging to different kinds of community groups um, and different kinds of identities. Mm-hmm. Right. 
you mentioned before kind of the role of, of philanthropy. Um, mm-hmm. There's, you know, it's kind of one of the th- causes du jour for, for philanthropy is figuring out local news. I think you, you touched on before an, an urban rural divide. Mm-hmm. And I, you also mentioned in the book kind of a, a pack mentality that that occurs um, with some of these these funding organizations. So, you know, where where does does philanthropy fit into this picture? So I think um, news philanthropy shouldn't, you know, be scoffed at. It's really important and it's great that people are finding that journalism, just like the arts and the environment is something worth report is worth supporting with these big foundation dollars. Um, But I also think that there's like, if you look at, there are like always these darlings, right? And they're ones you and I know, Voice of San Diego, the Texas Tribune, like, um, you know, and their names that keep coming up over time. And it's because news organizations or sorry, the found, the fund, the found funders tend to, once there's like one proof of concept, like once one of them has donated or, or supported an organization, the rest follow because it's kind of been vetted. Right. So, so these philanthropists like one places that are, getting philanthropy tend to attract more of it, right? Because there's kind of like a clustering effect of that. Um, but two, like what the the flow of dollars shows is that unfortunately philanthropists have pet causes, right? Um, and, and pet types of places they like to fund or think need help supporting journalism. And so when we looked at the distribution of investigative journalism funds, right? And we compared that to kind of, how many journalists there were per capita at kind of the state level. We tried to just kind of track these flows of money. Like was philanthropy for investigative journalism actually going to places that didn't have much of it, which would seem to make sense, right? Like you want to support places that don't have a lot of investigative journalism. We found that there really wasn't a correlation between places that didn't have a lot of investigative journalism and then where the funding was actually going. And then we also saw um, this sort of, city city situation where if you looked at the different types of communities that philanthropy news philanthropy was being targeted at and again this is in the case of investigative journalism which is a fairly like substantial pot right um big city philanthropies gave to big city outlets and i have a case study of 100 days in appalachia which is run out of west virginia university and if you don't look like the traditional mold of a a place either a a type of place that philanthropists are used to funding or you don't fit their preconceived models of like what your problems are supposed to be. It can be a real upward challenge for some of these sort of non-city, non-coastal places to attract philanthropy. And it's a conversation within philanthropy, but it's one that needs to happen at a much, a much louder level. Mm -hmm. And, uh, as we start to to kind of um, wrap up here, there there is a a lot to to be concerned about as as we've discussed here, as as you as you certainly outline in the the book. But you end with this concept of news resilience. Um, wondering if you could define that for us and 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 how you think about that as we kind of figure out what mm-hmm. some some next steps might be. So I think that 
what I was thinking about is like, if we had to make a scale of like the kinds of characteristics that communities have that make them more or less vulnerable to the effects of what happens when they lose a local media institution dedicated to covering them, then we can have a better sense of kind of how to support each place, right? And so what are the factors that insulate some communities and make them good places to support innovation and local news. And this might be everything from, you know, how many local libraries there are to, um, you know, what the underlying, you know, maybe there's a university there. Um, And if we can identify places that have low news resilience, and as I pointed out, there are these historical news deserts. If we have a really good sense of the categories of things that make places able to support and sustain um, markets, right, like for independent media, um, I think that we can start to target our philanthropy and our commercial initiatives a little bit more wisely um, and with a little bit more of a sense of like, what are the factors that it takes for news to survive? News doesn't have to be journalism, right? Information doesn't have to be journalism. What kinds of community institutions are already out there? And what kinds of places really need our help, right? And really need the support because they're so disadvantaged that they don't have any of it, right? And how can we give those communities access to basic news and information needs like, you know, whether their school is going to start on time or where COVID testing sites are. And there are a lot of communities in this country that don't have, and even just neighborhoods in big cities that don't have that very basic orienting knowledge. And a news organization doesn't have to be the one to provide it. Right. Um, So like a public health department can post COVID sites, right. COVID vaccination sites. So that's kind of where I wrap up. Um, Like how can we think about the role that news organizations play in community life and what kinds of places are doing those sorts of things at the community level so that you don't have to be duplicative. I mean, journalists often sort of approach their work with the idea that they are these public servants (laughs) who, you know, are bringing a good that nobody else can provide. And in some cases, yeah, that's true. But in a lot of cases, like the basic information, I think we can get from elsewhere. Right. And are you are you seeing any any examples of, of places where this this mindset you, you've been articulating has started to to take hold at all? Yeah, I mean, I think that like Chicago is one of the most interesting hotbeds for media innovation. Um, and I think that you see that um, with the Chicago City Bureau, where they actually have pay ordinary people to take notes at public meetings and then can kind of, you know, if those people are already going to be there. If we can train them a little bit about how to take good notes, maybe those can, you know, if they spot a story, then that can become a story. So like distributing the act of journalism. Um, I, I think a lot of people point to libraries, but libraries are very political. And I have a really good example of that in the book where like this community in Florida refuses to buy a digital subscription to the New York Times. And it's this huge fight that attracts national attention. But libraries not every community wants to support a library. So I'm really concerned about, you know, focusing too much on that. But I think, um, you know, there are places 
where people are working hard, like in Philadelphia, I think, and unfortunately, a lot of these are city based Mm -hmm. to do really hyper local, sort of authentic community coverage. But at the same time, that's like enclave coverage, right? It Mm -hmm. doesn't challenge power. It it serves a small and important niche, but it doesn't necessarily connect back directly to the large sort of power structures in that municipality or state or at the national level. And we've got to figure out a way to amplify these experiments um, and these really neat innovations to make them, to, to take the, the, te- the sort of power that they're challenging and make sure it gets heard, you know? So many other uh, interesting elements of this book that we did not even get to, to touch on. I, I highly encourage folks to to pick it up and and explore more of, of your thoughts around local news and uh, you know where where we might go uh, moving forward. And just to to recap, uh, Nikki's book is called News for the Rich, White, and Blue: How Place and Power Distort American Journalism. Published by Columbia University Press. Uh, Nikki, thanks so much for joining us today. Thank you so much for having me. I really, really appreciate it. This podcast is part of the Democracy Group. Thank you for listening to this episode from the Democracy Group. If you want more podcasts like this, then visit democracygroup.org. There you will find our events, topics, and a newsletter as well. So head on over to democracygroup.org.